0: listeners we're back with a new season of the little red village podcast i am honored to introduce the first guest of season three fern malice the creator of new york fashion week you probably know fern from her work as the executive director of the council of fashion designers of america the cfda between 1991 and 2001 she created new york fashion week as we think of it today and was Senior Vice President of IMG Fashion between 2001 and 2010. Today, she runs Fern Malice LLC, an international fashion and design consultancy. Fern should probably be called Fashion's Fairy Godmother, and not just because her career has been built around uplifting the work of American designers and global fashion. I say this because of the fire that Jonathan and I saw in her eyes when she spoke about the books she loved, people whose work she admires, and the selfless way she shared stories with us about the many lives and careers that her work has supported. Over the past 11 years, Fern has been hosting an interview series with designers called Fashion Lives at the 92nd Street YMCA in New York City. 60 interviews so far, all really big names. The project became a book in 2015 called Fashion Lives, Fashion Icons with Fern Mallet. And the second volume arrived last spring both published by Rizzoli, the set sponsored by Nordstrom. There's more information about the books and where to buy them in our show notes. We're so happy to have you back with us for another season of interviews with some of the most fascinating figures in and around fashion. Our wonderful guests have so much to teach us. And now it's time to dive into one of the best conversations that Jonathan and I have ever been lucky enough Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to the kickoff episode for season three of Little Red Village with myself, Jonathan Joseph, Rachel Elspeth Gross, and our iconic guest for this first episode, the incomparable Fern Malice. For those of you who don't know, which it's hard to believe, Fern Malice is the tour de force behind what we call Fashion Week today. Her seventh on six initiatives as she led the CFDA for her 10 years. As executive director have left an unmitigated footprint on the world of fashion and it's something that she took with her when she joined IMG to take Fashion Weeks across the country and across the globe. She really is, in many ways, the godmother of fashion. Thank you so much for joining us today on Little Red Village Fern.
2: Thank you, I'm delighted to be here.
1: And we're delighted to have you I think when it comes to people who have shaped my fashion ethos, you sit at top that, that sort of firmament in many ways. And I want to thank you personally, before we get going, for being such an inspiration to my own endeavors within the fashion space as what I see as a stalwart democratizer of the fashion industry and always looking to bring it to more people in new ways, because I think that's something... That, as I've known of your career, I've always watched with just awe at the way you really use fashion to build bridges and connections and showcase the best of the American fashion industry. I would love to kick off by learning about a time, a story where you impressed yourself. You know, with such a storied resume as yours, I know there's got to be at least one story of the time you pulled a rabbit out of a hat and really outdid yourself. Because on Little Red Village, we love to share those insider stories of when you really pat yourself on the back and look back and go, you know, I really did that.
2: Gosh, that's a good question. You know, I don't think about that a lot because I'm not one who's often patting myself on the back. I just seem to do what feels like the right thing to do at the right time. I think common sense has been a theme throughout my career, doing some things at the right time and the right place, you know, and doing it with passion and commitment. Like you say, I've really been known as a connector. I'm always being asked, "Do you know? How do I reach someone?" So I had a public relations business many, many years ago in my life, and I thought I had four one one on my forehead. Now, your readers and listeners probably don't even know what that means. Now, we would say Google search, but four one one was where you went to get information about anything. And you know, I think when when I think about what you said like that aha moment in a way. You know, I think the first time I was in the tents in Bryant Park when they were being set up, and it was the very first season, and, you know, just watching the setup was remarkable. I mean, it took almost two weeks to set everything up, creating a pathway through the park so we didn't damage any of the limestone and any of the pathways in the park, you know, and how you have to build it from the From the ground up, getting the flooring in before you can get rigging in. Then, when you finally get the tent frame up, then you can start more of the interior rigging because of weather issues, and then all the sound and all the platforms and all the everything. And I think I was there when we got the first sound check when the sound guys put some music on, and you heard that just reverberate through the park, and I literally had chills and tears and. And it was really, it was really a special moment. And it's like, oh my God, this is really happening. And that was one of those moments, I think, in my life.
1: can only imagine. I mean, as you've spoken before in many interviews, you saw yourself early in your tenure at CFDA as a vanguard for the American fashion industry. And one of your first orders of business was finding a safe way where the ceiling isn't falling on anyone to show. And that moment must have been a great realization of of that goal. And so thank you for sharing that. I think that's just such a visceral explanation of that moment.
2: And another feeling like that, I'd have to say, was one way, way earlier in my life, which ages me significantly when, when I talk about it. But it was probably when I was at the university, and it was at the University of Buffalo. And it's when I was found out that I had been selected as one of their 20 guest editors, which at that time was one of the most prestigious competitions in the country. If you were interested in fashion, as a, as a young girl in, in high school and college, you know, you followed these Mademoiselle guest editorships and you, you, know, you learned about fashion from reading the magazines. And I got a telegram. People don't even know what a telegram is today. I opened that up in my mailbox. And and I really, I mean, I kind of started screaming like, oh my God, you know, and people around me had no idea what I was talking about, you know, and to receive that and find out that I was one of the 20 people in the country selected to come to New York, spend a month working at the magazine, becoming the guest art editor, working with 19 other talented students from all over the country, helping to guest edit an issue and take a trip and and live in the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which was a trip, but in, in and of itself, that was one of those. Wow, got it. I, I won, you know, I, I won the, the, the ring on the gold ring, you know, the brass ring on the on the merry-go-round.
1: Yeah, Perfect. it joins illustrious, you know, fellow alumni of that program, like Sylvia Plath, you know, that. Sylvia Plath, the
2: first. Johnson, taking oh, it. Oh, yeah.
1: I can only imagine one of the things we like to talk about here on Little Red Village is really how people can get started in the industry. And for you, that that's really, from what I understand, how how you started and what led to your first job as, in terms of you being the only one of your cohort to get that fateful call to say, hey, Fern, come back for a job.
2: Yeah. But, you know, not a lot of people say that they won a contest and that's how their career started, you know. And hopefully
0: less food poisoning than the Sylvia Plath <laughs> That wonderful book, the Story in the Bell Jar, about Poisoned avocado and crap, <laughs> taking out the whole class.
2: It didn't end well for Sylvia, but nevertheless, she, she was one of the icons of that, that program. Absolutely.
0: So we know that in May of last year, the second edition of your Fashion Live series came out with Rizzoli, and that's kind of like a whole, a massive collection of experiences that you've had with interviewing people with your 92nd Street YMCA project, which is amazing because it's really, in addition to the fashion, it's really community building. It's really a lot about up and coming young people, helping them to figure out where to go, what to do. And there's not a lot of that for young people in fashion. Are there any experiences you've had there that have really shaped your worldview or, or changed the way you've looked at your career, you know, specifically being surrounded with
2: Through those interviews with that I've done? People? Yes, ma'am. Well, you know, I've done 62 of those interviews now over 11 years. So there are a lot of them. Happily, there are now two books out. Fashion Icons 1 came out in 2015, and that was the beginning of the series. And we weren't even sure that this would ever take off. But, you know, after a couple of years, we did a book, and that was Calvin Klein and Donna Karen and Tom Ford and Andre Leon Talley, Bruce Weber, Holly Mellon. I mean, just an, uh, an unbelievable group of 19 fashion icons. The second book, which you just referenced, that came out in the spring, which was censored and supported by Nordstrom, also has in it, for everybody listening, an interview with done by the fabulous Bevy Smith. And so people who want to learn more about my career and how I started and all the ups and downs, read it in Fashion Icons too. And that book, besides my interview, includes marvelous stories about how these people started from valentino to leonard lauder tim gunn victoria beckham angela and rosita missoni the iconic you know centenarian iris apfel christian siriano the photographer that we love to death arthur Eldorf, beth ann hardison bob mackie sandra rhodes fabulous british designers a dear dear friend and billy porter and stan herman i think i missed stan it's so hard for me to pull out any one of them because every one of them have these stories and the hallmark of my interviews is that I take the position that these are people that are more than a name on a label. You know, who are you? How did you become you? I mean, none of these people inherited business My mom said, or dad, I'm retiring and now it's your chance to take over. I mean, except perhaps of these interviews when I did Angela and Rosita Masoni. I mean, Rosita was the mom, and Angela grew up in the business with the family, and it was just, you know, it was so normal for her to just evolve into that role. But for the most part, everybody else just had a passion. You know, they all, all of them, even from the first book, started with everything from a lemonade stand to you know, the thrift shop they created in their basement. They started dressing Barbie dolls. They would dress anybody. You know, One of my favorite Michael Kors stories, and I'm revisiting Michael on November 7th at the, at the 92 Y again, is when he was five years old and went for fitting with his mom for her wedding dress. It was gonna be her second wedding, obviously. And the dress was just, had a lot going on. And Michael at five years old said, it's too fussy. And grandma was in the dressing room and grandma loved the dress. And here's this little five-year-old Pip squeak saying, it's too fussy. Take off a few bows and then take off a few more bows and take off. And eventually they took off all the bows that were on the dress. And Michael won over his grandmother. And I think that's how he, his career started as far as I'm concerned. You know, the things I learned from talking to these people was about You know, perseverance and staying with something that you really believe in and, you know, and and learning to listen and who you can trust and trying to make sure you have the people around you who have your back. If I'm giving any advice to young people starting out in fashion, you know, honestly, some of the advice I would give them is learn more about the finances than you want to. Most people think, let me leave that to somebody else. And I, I did that in my career and I'm sorry about that, actually. You know, let me be creative. There's a finance person. There's somebody else there who's worrying about the numbers. The more you know about the numbers, the more smart you are about that, the better you are. You know, and if you have time, go to law school, you know, and if not, you know, then make sure that when you start anything, the first people you talk to is a lawyer. Hire a lawyer when you start, not when you get in trouble. And then it's going to cost you more money. Make sure at the beginning that, you know, if you have a, a name and a logo and a label and a trademark, you know, protect all that right out of the gate and learn from that. You know, they, they can be that, that's such an instrumental part of the business. You know, we, we can't do anything without lawyers. You can't get married. You can't die. You can't start a business, close a business, you know, get get a good one. And they are out there. They are. They definitely are.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, speaking of lawyers, for those of you who are hungry for more with Fern, you should check out Doug Hand's episode of The Laws of Style featuring Fern, which was a fantastic interview. And Doug has always been a great supporter of our work here at Little Red Fashion. Doug is the best fashion lawyer. The best. The best. The the definitive best. And
2: certainly the best dressed one also. Um, yes, absolutely. The closet and, envy I have. Yeah, t- <laughs> you know, he's a good friend and I got him to join us on the FIT Foundation board. On that board, all of us are there helping to further the careers of fashion students and trying to help make things happen at FIT for them. You know, it's important to do that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what we're all about here at Little Red Fashion. It's really building that next generation of fashion lovers, leaders and creatives. I want to circle back to, it's funny that you brought up that five-year-old story of Michael Kors, because one of the things we always ask on Little Red Village is really what your earliest fashion memory is, Fern. You know, that early moment where you really connected with or felt fashion speak to you.
2: You know, I grew up in a family where my dad was in the Garment District in New York, and I really loved going to work with him all the time. I loved the activity at that time. The Garment District really was a neighborhood And, I mean, it was filled with trucks and trolleys and fabric rolling up and down the streets and racks and rolling racks filled with clothing getting into the buildings and onto the trucks and shipped to the stores. And it seemed like everybody knew each other. Everybody was friends. Everybody stood on the street. All the men with their cigars at lunchtime, all the garmentos. And I say garmentos in a very loving way. You know, they all knew, knew everybody. They all told the best jokes. They were all charming salesman. So I grew up with closets full of scarves. I mean, I knew how to tie a scarf 8,000 ways, you know, and I would have parties where I would knot and tie scarves together and hang them from umbrellas and from corners of the apartment and always use them in many more ways than just knotting it around my neck or around my head. I had another uncle who was in the sportswear business, so I got clothes from him. And in high school, I was voted best dressed in my high school. So that was a kind of a pivotal, exciting moment for me. And I felt like I, that was like a reputation I had to live up to. And, you know, I just always loved clothing and loved dressing up. You know, I just always remember trying to put books together and trying to, you know, I mean, clothing, clothing talked to me. I loved it. I wish more than anything that I had bins and bins of storage spaces. Because when I think of all the things that have, come through my life that I've let go of or passed on or gave away. I mean, I, I would have had the best vintage shop in New York, you know, with all fabulous clothing, but it just, somehow you, I don't even remember where it went and how, how, how it's gone. You know, and last night I actually saw a spectacular documentary called Pamela Love Story and it's about Pamela Anderson on Netflix and there's a scene in there where she opens up a a bin like a big storage bin and it's almost like being in a bunker and it just has her shoes. I mean, you've never seen so many shoes. I mean, it's just I mean, there, there were gasps in the theater like, "Oh my god." You know, I mean, it's amazing when you can keep those things and look back at them, but then got to keep moving on and letting go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I Mm -hmm. often think that way about some of my socks. That's what got me into fashion as a kid. My mom found the tallest socks in the garment district you could imagine to cover my leg braces. And I started becoming obsessed with matching them to outfits. And that's how I started my my Mm -hmm. kick. And even to this day, I think, oh man, the story that those socks could tell, which is something I think definitely you would resonate with. I know from your interview with Chug too, that you were in Love, Loss, and What I Wore yeah. off off Broadway. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and, and how you connected with it that? It was work? a
2: complete out of body experience for me. I mean, I I had that book for many years, small little gift book that a friend had bought me, for Eileen Beckerman wrote, and I was I was always enchanted by the book. I you know I thought it was it was so real because I mean the sketches were so refreshing and. Every page had a picture of a garment, a sketch, and on the other side of the page was a story about that garment. You know, I bought this when I had my first date with Jimmy and, you know, and what the dress meant to me. And, you know, and this is what I wore at my mother's funeral. And this is what I wore at the prom. And when I gave birth, this is what I was wearing. And, you know, and when Johnny broke up with me, this dress, I mean, every outfit had a story. And I believe that. I mean, I could tell you a story about every single thing in my closet, you know, and when I've gone to resale shops to give things to resell and people go, you know, some woman on the counter goes, no, no, no. And I go, do you know what this, you know, where this was from? Do you know why, how important this garment is? I mean, I would go crazy. I would get so upset that they were just dismissing my family, my children, my clothes. So, in any case, I mean, I had the book for many years, and then years later, the Daryl Roth, the producer, who is mother of a producer who is certainly making a fashion statement these days, Jordan Roth, and I knew her, and she had one of her colleagues call me one day, and I knew the play, I knew that it was happening for years, and it has an ensemble cast of five women sitting on a stage with a music stand and the and the loose leaf book with the a script in it. So. You know, you don't have to memorize everything under the sun and it changes, you know, it changes the cast all the time. And it's had everybody from, you know, Rosie O'Donnell and, and you know, Rita Wilson and Rhea Perlman and all sorts of characters and leading actresses and, and other real part-time characters. And so they called me and they said, do you know anybody in fashion that we can add to this, to our next group? And they said, because they had done one a while back with Stacy London, and it brought a whole bunch of new people to the theater. And I said, okay, let me think about it. And, and we spent many days on the phone and throwing out names, and I gave out a lot of good names that I thought might be fun to do it. And nothing seemed to be gelling. And then, I don't know whatever possessed me, but I said on the phone one day, what about me? And the you know associate producer said, oh my God, are you kidding? Would you even consider it? And I said, Yeah, well, maybe. Because it was was a moment in my career when I had left IMG. I had left Fashion Week. It was 20 years of doing that. I was taking time off trying to just enjoy my time and figure out what I wanted to do next. And so they said, let us send you a couple of paragraphs of part of the play and let's schedule, you know, a, not a rehearsal. What is it? Like a table read? like a table read yeah so i mean i came on an assistant who was helping me on some things and we went to the theater with the director we were the only ones there sat on the stage they read a part and said you're on and i read the piece and i'm supposed to cry a little bit in it and i tried to do my best tears and i was i was terrified and she said oh my god this is great you could you could absolutely do this and i said really And they said yes. And it was a lot of work. It was, you know, just about a month. It's seven nights a week and two matinees a week. You know, you really can't do anything else in your life when you're doing that. And Kathy Lee Joel, who was married to Billy Joel, was one of the people in the cast who was new to that also, and I knew her. And Lilius White, who's a great actress, and two other fabulous actresses. And we did it you know, got a little black dress. I think I had a DVF black lace thing. We all wore had it with black and, you know, and it came out and I got all my team and friends came and I organized a night for the CFDA membership to come, you know, I discounted ticket and it was really fun. I really had a good time. I would never do it again. I could never memorize all those kinds of things. If it was a normal kind of play where you have to really memorize stuff. And I remember I, I did a self-published book of pictures from our group and from a couple of parties we had as a team, and gifted that to all the women in the cast and everybody who produced it. It was it was a very special time, but you know it celebrated what we talked about, all the clothes that you wear and the jokes about it. You know, there's a joke about about Mylene Fisher. And, I'm going to go shopping for a black sweater. Oh my God, you need another black sweater. No, of course not. How many black sweaters yet? You know, you know, 20 of them. Okay. We'll get another black sweater, you know, and you know, what's in your handbag and, you know, the funny stories, you know, some you know, one of the characters does a whole thing going through her handbag, you know, and it's filled with cheese and crackers from an airplane that you were probably on three weeks ago in case you get stuck somewhere starving, you know, I mean, the, the stories of the things that we live with and surround ourselves with and where, you know, why we wear them and the women, you know, wearing, you know, the stories about going to get fitted for a bra properly, you know, and what a traumatic experience that is. And it's just, it's a delightful experience and the book is heaven. The book, that's a great segue there.
0: One of the things we always want to know is favorite books. We love book recommendations. Is there a particular, besides of course, one we just talked about, your your fashion icons. Is there a particular book that really inspires you or moved you or affected your career in some kind of way? Positively?
2: It's hard for me to say that. You know, I mean I wish I could move the camera a few <laughs> feet that way. I mean I have so many books and I mean I have so many fashion books, gorgeous books, one more beautiful than the next. You know, many of which are my friends, many of which have been gifted many of which are bought at every book opening book party that you have to have, you know, so many of them personalized to me, you know, I, I surround myself with books, you know, I mean, and a book that's actually charming, not, it's not a life changer, but it's this book with Mary Lou Luther, who was a journalist that we all love and adore who's in her nineties, She was with the LA times syndicate and fashion group for many years. And Ruben Toledo, the illustrator. They got together and did a book called Bespoke. And it's revelations from the world's leading designers. So kind of like Love, Loss, and What I Wore, on one side of the spread is a quote from Christian Dior or Coco Chanel or Pierre Moss or John Galliano or Tom Ford or Ralph Lauren. I mean, everybody, a quote from an interview or talk or conversation Mary Lou had with them that she pulled out and then the the spread is illustrated magnificently by Rubens it's just a a beautiful beautiful book and Rizzoli's publishing it but you know books like that come across all the you know all the time I mean I have Naeem Khan book I have the Tom Ford books I've got Tim Gunn's books I've got everybody's books Iris Apfel's books and she did a very nice children's book I think it's called a little golden book biography and it's, you know, it's very much designated for children.
1: Yes. That's a great one. I have it on my shelf too.
2: And then, you know, in looking up some of the books I saw there were a whole series of rebels with a cause that were young kind of fashionista books. I didn't read any books like that when I was growing up. I didn't know. I didn't know about them. I didn't know that there were any, I mean, there are books on now that I have read on on Dana Thomas's books on sustainability that are interesting fashion books that may change your life. Fashionopolis is fantastic. Yeah, Fashionopolis is favorites. great. I recommend that a lot. But I'm trying to think of what what other books. I mean, I grew up reading magazines like crazy. And I grew up reading Women's Wear Daily as a teenager when it was a paper. And I, and I miss having the paper and I miss having many of those magazines that are all now online. You know, and I think children growing up seeing all this online—it's a very different experience. And I don't think I, for one, don't think the imagery and the, the longevity or the integrity of what they're writing that stays with you as much when you're just looking at it on a screen and just pass it by, as opposed to when you're really holding it in your hand and you're reading it, and you put it down, and you pick it up again, and yeah, it's, it's definitely like,
0: less tangible in the world. Yeah, there's a,
2: there's a permanence to that that resonates in your head a little bit more than. Everything that's just swipe, swipe, swipe.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I am always a bigger fan of having that piece of ephemera, that that magazine, that article, rather than going through a screen. I think you retain it better.
2: Yep. I'll tell you one quick story at this time. Oh, please, there is. Please um, do. It was two thousand eight. Was when the election when Obama was running for president, right? It was two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. And those years the tents of Brian Park, all the fronts had great graphics and paintings and visuals. You know, we always did something that was topical to the time and place. And that season in that September before election day, the whole front of the tent was campaign buttons. Very colorful campaign buttons. And all the slogans were, you know, vote for style, dress this, you know, elect stilettos, you know, whatever. It was all just funny, funny, fabulous style, fashion driven, campaign buttons of different sizes. So it was a one of those tent fronts that everybody stopped and took pictures in front of. It was before there were, you know, the Instagrammable wall, you know, where everybody had to do something. It was just organic and it was fabulous. And one day this family came up to me who were on the street because everything's kind of blocked off. And they came up and they introduced me to their daughter Maggie, whose name last name I can't remember right now. And she was maybe 12 years old or something and they said oh my god she's just loves fashion and you know loves 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 this and i forget exactly how, how the introduction came but i said oh well then why don't we take you inside and show you what's going on in here and you know and i took her and her mom inside and made arrangements for her to come back the next day and i got her credentials you know and took her to a couple of shows and backstage and she's, you know, she was like a gaga kid and like she died and went to heaven and started to put together and we stayed in touch for many years. I think she's maybe just out of college now and went to dental school of all things, mm-hmm. but she started to do a magazine and, you know, and she would type it all up and, you know, print it and cut and paste and like very trends and just the cutest, cutest, cutest things. And she came to me with it and said, you know, she was trying to find a good name for it. She said she wanted to call it, it was like some French word. And I said, oh, no. and it was actually a French word that Donald Trump of all people way back then had the business with. And I, I should remember the word because I'm going to have to put this in my book if I ever do it, you know. And I said, no, no, no. I said, why don't you call it magazine? Oh. And she said, and I mean, every, it was like light bulbs went off. And she called it Magazine. And then we arranged the next season for her to come and to review the shows for her magazine for the Daily, for the Daily Front Row, the publication that we had on site. She became a reporter for the Daily, doing a little paragraph in there about what she liked and was seeing. And I remember it was when Ugly Betty was on TV. And the young man in there, who's a grown up actor now, who's just adorable. He had come to the shows and he and I hit it off and I arranged for her to do an interview with him. I thought she was just like, couldn't believe it. And all of that just, that was not my job, but it was just organic. And it was just to see a young kid who loved this and had potential and was being creative and to help her along. And I I mean, it was life changing for her in many ways. And, And it gave me so much joy. You know, and I still love the name Magazine, the great name. The
1: fantastic name. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful story. I mean, that's really at the end of the day what it's all about. It's helping people, young people especially, hone in on what their passion is within fashion writ large. And I mean, that's why I'm here. That's what I'm here to do is to try and tell stories that make clothing come alive and make fashion more accessible and hopefully empower kids. Well, your red dress
2: comes alive and tells a story. So that's that does
1: it. Thank you so much for that, Fern. And thank you so much for your review, too. We really do appreciate it. That was our episode. Thank you for joining us on this installment, kicking off season three of The Little Red Village. As always, both Rachel Elspeth Gross and myself, Jonathan Joseph, are pleased to have welcomed our amazing guest for this first episode of the season, the amazing Fern Malice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fern.
2: It was great. Thank you
1: amazing guests sometimes mention people, concepts, places, or ideas that we think are especially important to talk about. This season, I'll be popping in at the end of every episode to highlight a few of these with you and remind you to check out our blog at littleredfashion.com for the show notes, free downloadable worksheets for grades three through 12, and articles I whipped up just for you to learn more about these curated topics. Okay, so you know that Fern Malice was the executive director of the CFDA, but do you really know what the CFDA is? The CFDA is one of the most important groups in fashion. Its acronym stands for the Council of Fashion Designers of America, and it is the most important trade organization representing the American fashion industry's interests here and abroad. It was begun by Eleanor Lambert, the amazing public relations expert, who can also be credited with the Battle of Versailles and the Met Gala, among other things. If you're curious about Mademoiselle Magazine's guest editor program after hearing about it in today's episode, fear not. The Mademoiselle guest editor program began in 1945 because the popular Young Women's Fashion and Lifestyle magazine wanted to really put its finger on the pulse of its readership. And what better way to do that than to once a year in the summer invite a cohort of women to come from their college campuses to the Barbizon Hotel for Women, where they were able to spend a month putting together the college issue. It was not just any hotel. It was a residential hotel only for women. Located at 863rd Street and Lexington Avenue, playing host to over 700 women on any given night during its heyday, it was kind of a middle ground between the old and the new, offering young women a safe and respectable place to stay while also offering them entree into whatever sort of life they desired. If they wanted to be working women, careers. If they wanted to find a husband, cosmopolitan dating. Learn more about the Barbizon
0: Hotel on our blog. That's a wrap for today. Visit us at littleredfashion.com, where you can find the show notes and transcripts of Little Red Village podcast episodes. Follow us on social media for additional content, and to find out more about what's coming next. If you enjoyed this episode, there are many more, and you can listen to them on all podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify. And remember, fashion is for everyone.